Well, today we conclude our series through the book of 1 Timothy, which is entitled The Deliberate Church. Deliberate is exactly what uh, the young pastor Timothy needed to be as he was charged to nurse this sickly church back to health. And Paul exhorted uh, Timothy to be deliberate in his rebuking of the false teachers, deliberate in seeing godly people fill the positions of leadership, deliberate in pursuing godliness himself as a pastor as he was to watch his own life and watch his own doctrine, and then also deliberate in caring for the disadvantaged of of, uh, the church. Well, in our passage today, we look at Paul's final encouragements and instructions for this young pastor, Timothy. And uh, keep in mind, while these words are clearly written to uh, the pastor, they were also directed to the entire church. So this letter was to be read to everyone. And in fact, a number of times in the letter there, Paul addresses actually everyone in the plural. So there is application here, not only for pastors, but then also for you as well, as we all ultimately labor for the health and success of the church. If you're taking notes, the big idea from, for today's sermon, it's something that uh, we've been looking at for the last uh, 10 plus weeks here. A good summary, the main idea, a good summary of the book is guard the gospel by pursuing the things of God in effort to honor him. Guard the gospel by pursuing the things of God in effort ultimately to honor him. Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 11 to 21. I'll go ahead and read that. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, Thus storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So if you're taking notes, we're basically going to take that main idea and then break it up into three different points. Guard the gospel by pursuing the things of God in effort to bring all honor to God. Let's go ahead and start with point number one. Guard the gospel of God. Look at, look at the last verses there, verses 20 and 21. They make an excellent summary of the entire letter. It reads, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. 
Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now these words are from a man who labored for Christ tirelessly for decades. And in his own effort to evangelize and plant churches, he no doubt saw great hardships. So you can look at 2 Corinthians, for example, and see all of the hardships he experiences. He faced persecution, not only from his own people, so the Jews, but then also from the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And so here Paul directs Timothy's attention to the most important thing in the treasury of church ministry. That is the gospel, the deposit of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says there, oh, Timothy. Here we have this oh. I mean, it's really there in the Greek language, oh. We don't really speak like that. But when we do, um, you know, usually we're imploring someone. We're really calling out someone to listen maybe to what we have to say. And so we say, oh, such and such. Oh, Timothy here. He's making this young, this uh, emotional appeal to his young disciple. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. It literally reads, oh, Timothy, the entrusted deposit. Guard it. So the highlight there is on, on what has been entrusted to Timothy. Have you guys ever been entrusted with something? Something of somebody else's that uh, someone puts into your care? Maybe somebody's pet. Maybe somebody else's jewelry. I mean, when Melanie got married, we were, we were wearing the jewelry of uh, uh, her parents, and her parents were jewelers. You know? So these things, you know, they cost a ridiculous amount of money. So much so that it made her a little bit uncomfortable that she was wearing this much money around her head. Uh, she thought maybe her head was going to be in danger there. But she's entrusted with something that's not hers. Maybe you've been entrusted with someone else's car. But, but here what, what Timothy and the church, what we too are entrusted with is not only a thing, but it's a thing really that describes a person. It's more like something like this. If, the, if your boss is going to entrust you uh, with the responsibility, let's say, of sealing a deal on behalf of a company. And so your boss determines that you are the best person to do this. And so you've got to bring your game and actu- accurately represent the entire company, its purposes, its mission, its vision, especially, let's say, your boss's desires. That's more like what Timothy and the church was entrusted with. But they weren't entrusted with representing an earthly company. They're here entrusted with representing God himself. The truths given to Timothy and the church, given to us, they are truths about a person. And so insofar as we accurately hold out these truths, we accurately represent God himself in his words and in his will. He is entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, This here is referred to as the faith. So there in verse 21, elsewhere in in the book, it's referred to as the good doctrine in 4.6. It's referred to as the truth a few times. It's referred to as the teaching. It's also referred to as the glorious gospel. So what he's referring to here is a body of doctrine, particular beliefs about a particular person and the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, uh, if you know your surroundings, we know that it's definitely not cool to believe in a body of doctrine that is set. You know, the fact that there is a standard. I mean, today's society, we want everything to be more fluid. 
The false teachers wanted to do exactly that. They wanted things to be a bit more fluid, which is why Paul tells him here, uh, here at least, to guard it, guard the deposit by avoiding their babble and their contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, the so-called knowledge. He says, you guard the truth by avoiding those things because those things are out of bounds within the set, the set doctrine, the set body of beliefs. Paul actually has a condemnation for non-Christians who are doing just this. Uh, later on in, in the book of Titus, in a similar church planting situation there, false teachers um, professed to know Jesus Christ, but they were denying him by their works. So there was some sort of profession, look, we believe in a Jesus, but yet at the same time, it's false doctrine that leads to false living, and they're out of bounds, both in doctrine as well as we see in action too. So Timothy is supposed to stick to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is in verse 15 of chapter 1. Here, Paul lays it out early on in the book. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Uh, You know, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, uh, we're glad you're visiting with us. And as you dialogue with other Christians, as I assume you will, maybe your friend brought you, it's really helpful to try and see things as the Bible holds them out. So the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the message and the story of Scripture? And verse uh, 15 of chapter 1 is actually an excellent summary. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So what motivated God himself to enter in, to take on flesh and enter into the world was the fact that man had rebelled against him. And so God moves out in love and grace and mercy in order to save those very ones that rebelled against him. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and where those where we should have deserved, where we did in fact deserve death and judgment, Jesus Christ bears our sins for us. And he bears the wrath for us in order that we might be saved. And he does that all on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he means when Paul says, that's what Paul means when he says, um, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's that body of doctrine boiled down into a handful of words. So if you're looking for something to summarize Genesis through Revelation, that would be an excellent summary. Uh, this last week I got into a, a, a good conversation with um, a guy at uh, Starbucks. Starbucks is my second home. Uh, if you know from the earlier hour, apparently it's Oscar's second home too. <clears throat> but there was this guy uh, that I see there all the time. He's maybe 70 years old. And a bunch of people, you know, they come and they all drink coffee together. And for the longest time, I've been wondering, like, who, who are these people? Because they're obviously here every day just as much as I am, uh, if not more. And so I just approached him and I struck up a conversation and it came out and he's seen me study my Bible a lot. And so we got we got to talking about religion and he, he says that he was a, a self-proclaimed atheist. And we got into the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I wanted to know whether or not he knew what the gospel was, because uh, he was a Jew, and he said he read the Old Testament in Hebrew, and he's read the Bible. And so, as an atheist, I said, okay, well, why don't you tell me what the gospel is? And eventually, we got into this great conversation. And as I was clarifying things, talking to him about how Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, God the Son, he says, basically, so you're telling me that I'm a sinner And I said, yes. 
And so, you know, we've been learning as we study evangelism. I responded, have you ever stolen anything? And he said, well, yes, I have stolen it. Have you ever told a lie? He said, yes, I have told a lie. Have you ever lusted in your heart after another woman or after another man? And he said, well, yes. And so I said, so you're, you just admitted that you are a lying thief and adulterer. And his response was interesting. He said, oh, you know, come on. Those things make me a sinner. And I said, yes, not because I say so, but because the Bible says so. Because there's a set body of doctrine here that actually relates to you and your condition. And I wanted him to understand the story of Scripture, the gospel, as the Bible itself represents it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And even this man who says he was familiar with Scripture didn't really know what the gospel was. Um, So it's helpful for us to be on the same page here. The great and wonderful thing is that Jesus Christ indeed came to save. Though that's what's really at stake here for the individual. It's not about Jeremy's opinions or a Christian's opinions here and their stances. It's really about God's character and his way of salvation, what he's done in history. It's about salvation. And here, that's what the false teachers, they were doing. what they were doing. They were swerving from the faith and leading other people to swerve along with them. Which is why Paul is so clear in his stance against these false teachers. He knows that ultimately what is at stake is their own salvation. If they themselves do not acknowledge that they're sinners, well, how can they be saved? So if you're a non-Christian and you're visiting again here, this speaks to you. Paul is calling us, God himself is calling you to repent and believe and to believe in that gospel. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Anyone, regardless of how sinful they might be, to turn and believe in him and be saved. Be forgiven of your sins and justified. Anyways, that is what the church was to be about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. They were to guard it. But how was he to guard it? How was he to guard it? We saw that he's supposed to steer clear from the battle. But if you look back at verse 11, he's also to pursue the things of God. That's point number two. Point number one is guard the deposit, guard the gospel of God. Point number two is by pursuing the things of God. Point number one, guard the gospel of God. Point number two, by pursuing the things of God. Just as Paul ends his letter with an emotional interjection, so he begins it. Look there in verse 11. He begins this section, at least, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. So in line of what the false teachers were doing, as we looked at last week, he now zeroes his focus on Timothy, O man of God. Imagine how encouraging this title must have been for young Timothy. Uh, You know, he's a young, fearful pastor stepping into a situation, into a church that's probably more than a little bit chaotic, right, with all the false teachers, and then some of those false teachers are twice his age. So here, this encouragement is to remind him that, yes, while you might feel like you are adrift at sea, maybe a little bit lost trying to get your bearings as you you minister to the church, you are still owned by God. He is a man of God. You know, the Old Testament, uh, this title in the Old Testament is reserved for leaders that God had used greatly. So we're talking about Moses, 
Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, and some other prophets. Now here's young Timothy being added to that list of men that God had greatly used to deliver his people. It's, it's really encouraging here. And, and Timothy, he's just supposed to shepherd God's people, to do the normal stuff that every Christian is supposed to do, excel in godliness, and then hold fast to his word. And then as a pastor, he's supposed to teach his word. So our tendency here, maybe T- Timothy's tendency is to look back at the heroes of the faith and think like, how can I be, you know, I stand apart from them. But here Paul's saying, no, you too are a, a man of God that God will use greatly if, they cling, if he clings fast to the word of God. Let's look, let's look more closely about what this man of God was to do. He was to pursue the things of God specifically by pursuing godly character, by pursuing godly character. So he says, flee ungodliness and pursue godliness. Flee, pursue. We see this language um, throughout the rest of the New Testament. You know, you have the put off, put on language, say no to ungodliness and say yes to godliness. Uh, But we have this fleeing from something and then fleeing to something or fleeing and then pursuing. Have you guys ever needed to flee? I remember needing to flee for life when the house that I lived in in my teen years almost burned down. So basically what had happened is my mom was making some special uh, onion oil. It's really delicious onion oil. And what you do is, you know, you put the onions in and you basically put it in a, in a thing of oil and you just let the thing simmer for a really long time. Um, but of course, you know, if you leave oil on the stove and it gets hot enough, what happens? The thing ignites. Okay, so I'm upstairs. My mom is gone. She went to go pick up, I think, my younger sister. And I'm upstairs in my room. Uh, blasting the music as I typically did, and uh, you know, with my with my door closed, and I hear this really faint, annoying beep, buzzing noise. I said, like, "What is this buzzing noise?" I said, "That that must be like the radio or something." Um, and so I just kind of sat there listening to the music, uh, and then finally I thought, "Oh my goodness, that annoying buzz sound is a fire alarm." Um, so I open the door, I'm on the second story, and I see the smoke coming up, you know, around the stairs and into, into the top of the second floor. And so I bolt downstairs, and I literally could not see anything from, like, waist up because the smoke was, you know, that black. And so I'm, you know, basically like a monkey crawling on all fours trying to find out where the source of the fire is. Uh, see that it's the kitchen, and I think, oh my goodness, I can't put it out, I need to flee. Because really, if I don't flee, then this whole house, I'm going to die, and then this whole house is going to burn down. And so I fled out of my house, just looked around, and my neighbor's door was open, and she wasn't around, so I just ran into the door. (laughs) And she was, like, doing something on the floor. I think it was, I forgot when it was. For some reason, I think she was, like, wrapping some sort of gift. And I was basically, like, standing right in front of her in her own house, and she was like, yes? (laughs) I said, uh, my house is on fire. (laughs) And she responded, so should we call the fire department? (laughs) And I said, yes, absolutely, we should definitely call the fire department. Um, well, thankfully, her house was, her door was open. Thankfully, she was home. Thankfully, she could actually go and call the fire department, and they eventually came, and they flooded the house, and then we lost some of it, uh, but thank God there was no loss of life. Timothy here is supposed to flee knowing that his life is in danger in the face of ungodliness. He's supposed to know very clearly his end. If he doesn't flee, if he doesn't run and get up and get out of there, 
that his life is in danger. Not only his, though, but the whole entire church's. He's supposed to flee from ungodliness, and then he's supposed to pursue and find safety in godliness. Those things that he's supposed to find safety in are there, righteousness and godliness, so pursuing the things of God. He's supposed to pursue faith in God and love, so love towards God, love towards his people. He's supposed to pursue steadfastness and gentleness, so steadfastness would be like the endurance throughout life. Gentleness, John Stott says, is patience with difficult people. So he's supposed to flee, he's supposed to pursue. He's supposed to put on, he's supposed to put off. He's supposed to say no to ungodliness, say yes to godliness. If I asked you guys what the role of godliness plays in the Christian faith, you know, I think most, most Christians generally would see it as something that God simply wants us to do, these things he wants us to do but not something that actually protects the faith. But a pursuit of godliness, though, protects the faith. It's not something merely that God wants you to do. By running towards godliness, we say, yes, we want to live by the ways of that God. We honor that God because he can actually save. And so we run to the house of God, so to speak, to find refuge. So as I tell this story, I can say, I thank God that that woman's front door was open. I thank God for my neighbor. I don't, know what I, would have, I don't know what I would have done if she weren't at home, if the door was not open. The same thing goes for God, isn't it? I mean, when I tell this story about me fleeing from my house and running into this other house, everyone else, they respond the same way. Oh, well, thank God the house was open. The same thing works here as we seek to protect the faith. We, pr- we protect God's reputation, right? So as we tell the story where we know without a doubt that ungodliness is dragging us down and leading us towards hell, and then when we realize our ultimate end and we run from that and we're running towards God, doesn't everybody else say, thank God that God's door was open. Thank God that he can actually deliver. He sees the fires of hell and he puts them out insofar as he draws people out from them. And delivers them into heaven. When we understand that God actually saves us from the flames of hell through the gospel. We ought to say. Thank God for Jesus Christ. I don't know what I would have done. If he did not act. If he did not die on the cross for sins. And our dependence on him. And our delighting in him. In his home. Underneath that master. Living by his ways. In his deliverance in all of the characteristics that he passes on to us, all of those things help us protect the truths of the gospel. Like God is really who he says he is, and then he actually does what he says he'll do. Well, as Timothy is to pursue godly character, what else is he supposed to pursue? He's supposed to pursue God's truth. He's supposed to pursue God's truth. Look at verse 12. So first he addresses godliness, the pursuit of it. Then he says, he gets to the doctrine, the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. So, you know, belief and behavior, they're, they're both addressed oftentimes in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then the book of Titus. You have be- belief that gives birth to a genuine uh, behavior here. A creed influences one's conduct. So here, naturally speaking, having addressed godliness, he addresses the faith, 
the body of doctrine. Again, these, these, this body of doctrine is what the false teachers were wandering away from. So very naturally here, Timothy is supposed to fight for it, fight for that body of doctrine, as well as all of its applications and implications that uh, fuel the Christian's lifestyle here. But this language of fight is much more intense than pursue. Have you guys ever needed to get in a fight? No, I'm not going to tell you about fight, <laughs> fighting here. The Greek word for fight, uh, it shares the same root word as agonize. And it's used twice here in this verse. Agonize. It can refer to fighting as in battling or fighting as in agonizing in some sort of uh, athletic competition. And here there's good reason to think that it's referring to uh, battling as in war because he says earlier, wage the good warfare. Um, in Second Timothy 2... He uses actually both images there of warfare as well as athletic competition. He says in chapter 2, verse 3 of 2 Timothy, share in the suffering as a good soldier, there's the warfare imagery, of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. But then he also uses the athletic realm, and he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. But a question we all should be asking, and that I'm sure Timothy was asking, uh, is what does it look like to fight the good fight of the faith? 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8 is helpful for us here. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. He says there, I have fought the good fight. So there's that same language, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. So here we can boil fighting the good fight of the faith. We can boil it down to keeping the faith. The phrase is used interchangeably there. Fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. So basically anything involved in keeping the faith is what it means to fight the good fight of the faith. Now, for Timothy, it involves all sorts of things. We could just comb through uh, the letter that we've been looking at over the last 10 weeks here. I mean, the church is supposed to be a pillar and buttress of truth. So to ensure that it is a pillar and buttress of truth that is preaching the gospel, that Timothy himself is holding fast to it, that's part of fighting the good fight of the faith. And then we have all of its applications and implications. We got loving the church, using the scriptures rightly waging the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience, keeping the main thing of the gospel the main thing. We got training himself for godliness. We have dedicate yourself to the reading, teaching, and preaching of the scriptures. All those things Timothy is supposed to do as he fights the good fight of the faith. First and foremost, preserve the gospel. And then even as the church, right, they're supposed to fight together, praying for people. In chapter 2, for example, especially those in authority, making sure godly people fill the right positions of leadership in the church, caring for the disadvantaged, caring for elders, regarding masters with all honor. So to summarize here, fighting the good fight of the faith is striving to honor Christ by living according to his word and in the power of the spirit. It is striving to honor Christ by living according to his word and in the power of the spirit. And we learn to honor Christ from the word of God. So Christians are truth-driven people here. Truth-driven people. And guarding the deposit 
involves guarding God's truth about himself along with his way of salvation. The false teachers, they are obscuring God, right? His character, his way of salvation. And they would rather opt for, instead of the gospel of Christ, they opt for genealogies and Jewish myths and things like that. So again, that's why Paul is so clear here. He's saying, stay away from those things. Babble. Those people are influenced by demons even. And you fix yourself on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians are a people of the book. And we are supposed to guard what is here. It's why God charges the church to not add anything. And if you do, there are severe consequences. You know, going back to my uh, conversation with uh, that man at Starbucks here. Um, he said he kept on insisting that Jesus didn't live. There was no such thing as Jesus, even though non-Christian historians and Christian historians clearly acknowledge uh, that that Jesus lived. And he said, "Look, you know your Bible. If you don't, if, if your Bible's not true, then you got nothing." And I said, "Absolutely, because we as Christians believe that God has given us His divine Word, and we believe it, and it is in fact trustworthy. So we as Christians are people of the book, people of God's truth." So as Paul is to guard the deposit, he's supposed to pursue godly things, the things of God. And he's supposed to pursue, the third thing here, is the reward of eternal life. This helps Christians guard the gospel by preserving the true hope of salvation, isn't it? I mean, if there was no salvation, if Jesus said these things, but really there was no salvation, then what do we make God out to be? Then he would be a liar, But in pursuing the real thing of eternal life, the goal of future salvation there and the fulfillment of it, we actually protect the gospel. Look at verse 12. Take hold of eternal life. So he says, look, you pursue godliness. You fight the good fight of the faith. And here he says, take hold of it. It's like we can imagine him taking hold of that thing with, with with both of his hands there. And there, this eternal life is just another way of speaking of salvation, life in Christ, a life of purity, holiness, a life of immortality before God, all of those things won through Christ's blood. You see how Paul is caring for this young pastor's soul? As he says, take hold of that, Timothy. I mean, he knows the challenges and difficulties of the Christian life. He's an old man when he's writing this, and he's just a handful of years away from death. And so so as this old man is writing this letter to this young Timothy, he knows what Timothy, who's just beginning his ministry, needs to move towards. And he wants him. He knows that difficulty is coming. And so he wants him to lay hold and look with his eyes at that thing that is ultimate there. Take hold of eternal life. You know, it's interesting, Paul... Uh, when he's closer to the end of his <clears throat> end of his life, he's feeling the death sentence. In Second Timothy, his last letter, or last known letter that we know and have, he's basically writing his last will and testament to his dear son Timothy, and it's a moving account. <clears throat> but he says there, as the old man, and he's encouraging Timothy, he looks back on all of those decades of ministry, and this is what he says. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have run the good race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. 
So that's incredible. I mean, here you have the old man, Timothy, looking back at those decades of faithful laboring, all by the grace of God. And he's able to say, I fought the good fight, and so there is laid up for me this future inheritance. I mean, he's writing to Timothy, and he's wanting Timothy to, to, when he gets to Paul's age, you know, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, as he surveys the rest of the, the, what, the ministry that's come in the past, he wants him to sit and survey and be confident that he labored as faithfully seeking to take hold of this eternal life. I mean, Paul, he just boils down all of salvation to these words, eternal life, life in Christ. This life is a life that begins when people believe in Jesus, when they repent and believe and God gives his spirit inside of them. So it's not only something that is future, it's something that's very much present. So we all here right now, we have, we possess eternal life. So Jesus says in John three thirty six, whoever believes, that is presently believes, in the Son has, present, he has eternal life. And so we see, you know, in 2 Timothy, for example, that Paul says Christ already, Christ already brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I mean, we have life, but at the same time, we, that's something that we're supposed to look forward to and pursue and take hold of and fight for it. It's clear that this end is supposed to affect how we live now. It informs the present. I mean, that's why Paul encourages Timothy the way he does. Pursue godliness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life. The end informs the present in that we ought to approach our Christianity and our pursuit of godliness with a seriousness and a certain sobriety. Salvation, again, is at stake. I mean, Paul, he already brought it up in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. Go ahead and look there. Start in verse 13. He says, look, until I come, devote yourself. Devote yourself. Be committed to these things. Do not stray from these things. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That is God's words, God's truth about him and his way of salvation. To exhortation and to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on these things, yourself and your doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and and your hearers. So here Timothy very clearly is supposed to have a seriousness and sobriety. And I think the church, the individual is too. So when we come, when we come to church, you know, my, my, your expectation is that you, you should not be entertained by your pastor, let's say. That doesn't mean that I don't, I don't, uh, uh, no pastor, no Christian should ever use humor. Uh, but here, we want to approach the task of preaching these truths with a certain seriousness. The end here, what is at stake ultimately, is salvation. And it affects the present. So if you look at 17 to 19 here, we see how it affects the present for one group of people. Namely, the rich. So it is the, it's, it's, it's foolish to hope in things like riches because you know what? They're so uncertain. But it is wise to hope in God, the giver of all good things. He who is certain and who never changes. Right? And the rich folks, they're supposed to, uh, instead of 
storing up treasures for themselves here on earth, these uncertain treasures, right? They're supposed to hope in God who provides. And then not only that, but they're supposed to be rich in good works, storing up for themselves treasures in heaven, the foundation of the eternal life, the things that God counts as valuable. This is permanent treasure here. So Timothy, to encourage his church, he's supposed to encourage them all to approach life with this end times reality that salvation here is to come. Pursuing the eternal reward helps guard the gospel by focusing on our real hope. But as we look at the close of the letter here, did you notice where Paul wants Timothy's heart to be ultimately? It's underneath the care of a sovereign God. This brings us to point number three of our main sentence here. Guard the deposit by pursuing the things of God, all the while seeking to honor God. Look there in verse 13 to 15. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. I mean, if you're that young pastor... Imagine receiving all of these imperatives and and receiving them and placing them all on your shoulders. Flee this, pursue that, take hold of this, teach these things. You know, I suppose a young pastor might actually be tempted to be overwhelmed with all of these responsibilities that that he's supposed to pick up, all these things he's supposed to do, filled with anxiety, thinking maybe that the ministry is really all upon his own shoulders, But what a refreshment these verses could have been, should have been, for two reasons. He's reminded first of who's present or or, or the presence of the God he labors. Right, so the theme here is presence here. That's what Paul's doing here. He's taking Timothy's heart and, and shoving him back underneath the sovereign God who is present. Here is the God who gives and sustains all of life. Here he's pushed underneath the care of the Almighty God. The God who, who, who Timothy knew, you know, feeds the clothes, the, the grass of the field. This God who raises up kings and kingdoms and then brings them down at his own will. So when he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, is like Paul saying, look, Timothy, remember you are a man of that God. He will care for you under his sovereign wings. Just as he cares for all of life, so he cares for you. And this new church work that you're involved in, trust in him. And then Paul brings him to Jesus Christ. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I mean, that seems almost insignificant. Like, why is he bringing up this good confession here? Now keep in mind, Timothy too made a good confession, if you look a couple verses ahead. So here, Jesus is to be Timothy's forebear, his trailblazer. He too made a confession as he accomplished what God wanted him to be. I mean, this Jesus, knowing full well that he was going to be flogged and beaten and crucified, still went on to confess to Pontius Pilate, that their earthly kingdoms are all subject ultimately to him. I mean, this Jesus knows what it is like to face difficulty, to face persecution. 
in the face of people who reject who he is and who his good father is in the way of salvation. But yet he bears witness to the truth, John says. Just as Timothy needed to be continuing to do, he had made a confession at his conversion, at his baptism. He's supposed to continue in his confession and he's supposed to look to Jesus Christ all the while. I mean, that's energy for the battle, isn't it? To know that in the face of difficulty, you have a Jesus who made a good confession in the face of persecution. Now follow him. And then he says, that Jesus that made a good confession and he died and he rose again, he's going to come back. And he's going to find all of us, by God's grace, continuing in that good confession. So here he reminds Timothy of who he labors for. And so he concludes, keep the commandment. This seems to be another way of saying the faith. Keep the commandment unstained, unblemished until that Jesus returns. Being reminded that you are a man of that God and a servant of that Christ as all pastors are. So you see how these things are supposed to propel Timothy and should propel propel us towards faithful labor? I mean, the church of Ephesus and First Baptist Church today, we all, we all have the same mission. Preach the gospel, continue believing in it, and then live our life changed by it. And in so doing, we represent God and his heavenly kingdom uh, as, one, as a church who is appointed to be an earthly embassy, pointing people ultimately to him, heralding his message, pointing people to his will and his way of salvation. I mean, really, this is who it's all about. A deliberate church labors underneath the care of a sovereign God. That's where Paul leaves this Timothy at the end of his letter. Look there in verse 15. Amidst all of the imperatives, all the things that we as Christians ought to do, look at what he says in verse 15 to 16. He just shoots his eyes up to God, the sovereign one. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, literally here, Paul says that he has the deposit of the king of those who reign as kings. The lord of those who rule as lords. That's whose deposit you own and are entrusted with. Who alone has immortality. I love that, that, uh, that, that phrase there. He alone possesses immortality as his own. That's the God that we labor under. Then he goes on, he says, this is the God who dwells in unapproachable life, who, light whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's beyond reach of the sinful people. And the only reason why we know him is because he's chosen himself to reveal himself to us. To that God, to him, be honor and eternal dominion. That's fuel for fight, isn't it? For pastors to preach the gospel and for Christians to labor in evangelism and strive to pursue godliness and to cling to his word in the face of persecution, in the face of ungodliness, in the face of false teachers, we worship that God who is worthy of all honor and all dominion. The God who sees everything and a Christ who's gone before us and who will indeed come again. To conclude, what brings health to a local church? A recovery of the gospel and living life as a church in accordance with it. And that's what we as a church ought to be praying for 
That's what we ought to be. A be that's what we ought to be about, not only presently but for generations to come. Loving God and then sowing a seed of tr- truth. So, friends, let's join together and guard the deposit entrusted to us. It's exciting to think about what the Lord has done over the last half of a century. 60 years. It's also really exciting to think about what the Lord might, may, may do in generations to come here at First Baptist. But not only that, generations to come of people who are going to be affected by you as members of First Baptist. So it's my prayer that as we preach the gospel and live our lives in accordance with it, that God, by His grace, will bring us to even greater health. Well, in terms of guarding the gospel, we turn now to the Lord's Supper, where we break bread and drink the fruit of the vine in memory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He gave us this ordinance, actually, to protect the gospel. Not only to celebrate it and remember it, but it also moves to protect it. Because as we come to this, after hearing the word of what this stands for, by partaking it, we say, yes, we truly believe in what this symbolizes here. That Jesus Christ himself broke his body for us, for sinners. That he spilled his blood, that we as sinners would be forgiven of our sins. And so we come here remembering and celebrating his death on the cross. Through breaking and eating the bread and the pouring and drinking of the fruit of the vine, we are to remember and recognize that Christ bore the wrath and the judgment for us. Christ intended this Lord's Supper to be celebrated by local churches of baptized believers who have placed their faith in the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus Christ. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, or if you know yourself to be clinging to sin, and refusing to repent. Let me encourage you to simply let the elements of the bread and the juice pass you by. And Christians, keep in mind that this supper comes with a warning. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul instructs the church there, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as the bread and the cup are being distributed, a song is going to be played, and I'll call the ushers and musicians to come up forward. As these things are being passed around, let me encourage you to use the song as an opportunity to remember and to think, to meditate on what Christ has done on the cross. If you are a Christian and you know yourself holding on to sin, let me encourage you guys to leave those sins, repent of them even now, and be reconciled with your Father. So let me encourage you to take this time, silent reflection. Then when you're done reflecting and confessing your sins, join us in singing the song, Behold the Lamb of God. <clears throat>